So we're in a series called Anchors. Um, Jason was putting on the sign this morning and actually A had fallen off. I'm so glad I realized that just before worship started because that would have drove me mental if I had been missing a letter off that. Does anybody else get really annoyed with that? You see when you see signs and there's letters missing, does, does that, yeah, Helen Nesbitt's nodding, yeah. That drives me mental whenever I think, fix it, please someone fix it. Although I do find ones funny when people purposely kind of graffiti on them and they're a wee bit cheeky. I do, I do quite find that funny, but it's just when a letter falls off and no one is bothered, that kind of annoys me. So we're in this series called Anchors. And the whole idea is what we're wanting to look at is how do we live grounded in a world of shift and sand? What is truth? What can we believe anymore? Do you know, we can't trust the things. Sure, we can't. We can't trust things we read anymore. I, I live with three millennials, well, part-time. They're not always there, but they're there quite a bit. And uh, our three boys are constantly challenging me what I, what I think or, or what I say is true. So if I said, oh, I read such and such a thing. Did you hear about it? It's awful. The first thing, honestly, the first thing Caleb says is, where did you read it? I'm like, uh, in a paper. Which paper? I'm like, such and such a paper. He went, Mom, you know they have a bias such and such a way and you can't really believe what they say. And have you read anything else on this? And have you looked at it from another view? And I'm going, please, it used to be so easy, didn't it? Just read the paper and believed it. You just turned on the TV and you believed the news. Now it depends which news you listen to, which news right, which is not right. Is it Sky News? Is it BBC News? Oh my goodness, it's all so complicated. But anyway, how do we find then? How do we find what truth is? Why do we find, what do we want to anchor ourselves to? in this world that we live in. My dad, um, Ivan, has just joined Facebook. Any of you who have received a Facebook friend request, this probably was me, I was trying to help him have friends on Facebook and people that I knew he knew and everything else. Um, the rest of you, you may just get invited because you know me, so please be kind to him. <laughs> um, but anyway, at 71, he's joined Facebook. And I've been trying to explain to him how it all works, which is kind of complicated enough because my dad is not overly IT savvy um, but on Friday I was sort of thought so a couple of weeks ago got him set up so every week he comes down I'm giving him another wee tutorial and talking him through it so this week it was messenger and the boys were like why are you showing him that don't show him messenger but anyway so we, we Facebook messaged we video messaged Micah in Liverpool so dad was really really chuffed and have you ever noticed how older people, and all of you in the room who are slightly older like myself, whenever somebody older is talking to you on a video thing, all you see is their chin. So that's all Micah could see with Grandpa's chin. So I had to keep trying to adjust it so that he could actually see his face and everything. So as I was explaining all this and everything, then Dad says to me, Hi, this Facebook carry on. He says, sure, next week they're stealing all our information anyway. And he says, but he says, there's something you can do, but you need to talk me through it. He says, apparently, if you press and hold something for so many seconds, they can't do it. I'm like, oh, Dad, that's a hoax. And he goes, what? And I thought, oh, my goodness, what world have I stepped my father into? I shouldn't have done this. He should have let him just read his newspapers and he would be fine. But, you know, it's important that we can decipher fact from fiction, isn't it? And I think it's also important that we live our lives by a set of values, especially as followers of Jesus. So in this series of anchors, we're looking at those values. We're looking at those things that need to anchor us into Jesus, that are going to anchor us further and deeper into him. And some of those then we'll look at what are our non-negotiables? What does it mean to have 
a life? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be one of his apprentices? And this morning I want to talk about faith and faithfulness. When I think of faithfulness as an anchor, what do I think of? Well, I think of the importance of faith in our lives. I think of faith as our foundation. I think of my relationship with God and his with me. Faith for me is both a hard, solid thing, but it's also a fluid, growing, moving part of my life. The faith definition in the Webster Dictionary is this. Belief and trust in and loyalty to God. Belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Complete trust. Hebrews 11, and I'm going to be uh, flicking back and forward from Hebrews 11 this morning. Um, I think when we think about faith, we think of that chapter that talks about the great heroes of faith throughout the story of God. Um, And I'm just going to start by, anybody want a Bible? My willing assistant will give you one. Anyone over here? Great. So we're going to jump in at Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. And this first part, I'm going to read from the message. um, And it'll be on the screen. And read Eugene Peterson in the message translation puts it like this. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. By faith we see the world called into existence by God's word, what we see created by what we don't see. I love how Eugene Peterson words this. Faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. Faith is what makes life worth living. See, faith by definition is invisible, but it is certainly not passive. It cannot be seen, but it can be felt, and its effects are huge. By faith, the very ground that we stand on, stamp your feet, feel that ground, yeah. The ground, the very ground that this building is on was created by faith. God spoke and the world was created. Um, I think faith is the missing element that the scientists are searching for as they seek to discover the origin of life itself. Do you think with that big CERN, isn't it the CERN, what do you call it? The CERN Collider thing. Apparently they're going to make it bigger. Did you see that this week? Maybe that was fake news. I don't know anymore. But anyway, I saw a picture that they were making it even larger, this, this CERN thing, Collider, to try and discover the very origin and beginning of life. I think the missing thing that they're, they're, they're looking for but they can't see is faith. It was faith that spoke the world into existence. But if faith is so fundamental, then why does it feel so elusive? and difficult to find. It's not just that it's something that's invisible to the naked eye. I don't know about you, but at times I've felt like my faith has been more like sand slipping through my fingers than an anchor that keeps my life securely and firmly planted. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like your faith is slipping away from you? That the things that you built your faith on and have always believed and known to be true are being eroded and questioned at every single turn. In a world where faith is not only challenged but maligned, 
How do we hold on to what we know about God and our relationship with him? Well, I think we start at the very beginning with this truth. He is faithful. God himself is faithful. He is full of faith. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. Psalm 26, 2-4 says this, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance of your faithfulness. We can be faithful. We can have faith because he is faithful to us. He is faithful to us. More than that, God has faith in us. For him to be full of faith, for him to be faithful, which means full of faith, for him to be full of faithfulness, which is just full of faithness. Anyway, um, to be, he, he has faith in us. That blows my mind a little bit. God is the source of everything good in our lives, so there, therefore we learn how to have faith by looking at God himself. It seems weird that we would ask God to give us faith, right? But sometimes I do, seriously. Sometimes I'm in a situation, sometimes when I feel that, like my faith is slipping through my fingers, like, like what I've always known is moving further away from me, then I go to my knees and I say, God, please restore my faith. Give me faith. Give me faith in this moment. And it seems weird to ask God to give you something that, that to increase your faith, right? It's like, you're wanting to ask him to give you something so that you can have it that's a reflection of your devotion to him. It kind of feels a bit all around the wrong way. But the truth is, everything in our lives, everything we have comes from him. Every single thing we have. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus use these words. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. And he points out people's faith. He commended people for their faith especially those at this time outside of the story of Israel. There were people who, there was God's people of Israel who he called out, who he, um, Abraham, he, he identified Abraham to be the father of many nations. He was going to be the person, and then Israel came from that, and we know all about the exodus from Egypt and all those stories where God had this chosen people. He wanted to have this chosen people. But at the same time, we see Jesus step on earth and we hear all throughout the Gospels where Jesus encountered people that were outside of that story. The centurion who came along and wanted Jesus to heal one of his servants. The lady at the, the Samaritan lady at the well. People who were outside of the story of God, the, the people of God, and yet they knew who he was. And Jesus commended their faith. He commended their faith. Jesus, if he's not commending people's faith, he seems to be challenging them for not having enough faith. And here's the thing that I find quite funny when you read through those stories, and I encourage you to read through the Gospels and see these, these moments and these accounts. Very often, the people who seem to have the least faith in who Jesus was were those who had been fully immersed in the story of Israel. Those who should have recognized him, those who should have known who he was, didn't seem to get it. And he challenged their lack of faith, their lack of belief in who he was. 
In most of these stories, Jesus, in his accounts with people, what Jesus wanted was the people to acknowledge that God could do beyond what even they imagined and that he, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God. It's quite simple faith, isn't it, when you look at it? He wanted them to know and recognize that God is God and he can do all things and I am who I say I am, I am his son. He was looking for belief in his father who they could not see and they also wanted them to acknowledge that he too was God who they actually could see. I wonder which one was more difficult. Right, so we live in this moment of time in history where we have a faith in a God who we cannot see. But could you imagine being alive at that time? I find it very difficult, but could you imagine being alive in the time of Jesus? And it's easy to judge people, isn't it, as we read the scriptures? It's easy to judge the people who didn't recognize him. But could you imagine that you've, you've grown up in a belief and a faith in who God is, and all of a sudden, this person arrives and says, I am the Son of God. Which would be easier to believe? The God that you could not see or to, to actually accept that this person, this flesh and blood person, like you and I, was actually who he said he was. Hebrews eleven six, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our faith pleases God. Your faith is not just a set of things that you choose to believe, but our faith is a set of values that you have chosen to live your life through. Faith is not a passive set of ideas, but it's a blueprint to how we act, how we make decisions, how we treat other people, and how we live our lives every day. Faith is also not some magical, mystical thing that's out there. You know, for a while, um, we went to, uh, when we first got married, we were part of a church that were a wee bit kind of word of faith, name it and claim it, teaching. And, and in that culture of teaching, you were led to believe that if you didn't have enough faith, then God wouldn't move. If you didn't have enough faith, then it wouldn't happen. That's not what I'm talking about. This faith is our fundamental foundation of do you believe who God is? Do you believe he is who he says he is? And do you believe that he cares for you? When we boil down faith, that's what it is. It's not something that we need to grasp, that we need to try really hard for, we need to concentrate really hard for, that we need to punish ourselves to have. It is this simple, fundamental belief in who God is. Faith, when it's used that way, almost feels like we're trying to manipulate God into doing something that we want him to do. We don't ever get to manipulate God. He is God and we are not. So how do we grow in our faith? How do we grow in our faith? How do we nurture faith? If, if faith can feel sometimes like he's slipping away from us, that it's something that's moving away, that it's slipping through our hands, how do we firmly take hold of faith? How does faith become something, or faith become this strong, firm foundation that we stand and we build our life on? How do we nurture our faith in our lives? How do we prevent our lives from slipping into unbelief? 
Jason used to talk about this analogy. I haven't heard him use it for a while, so I'm going to steal it back from him. Steal it from him. But, you know, sometimes when people are afraid that they're going to sin, right? They say, how do I not sin? You know, and, and really, sometimes what people are asking is, how close can I get to the line? Like when our boys were smaller, there's none of them here today, so I can talk about them. And they never listen to the podcast anyway, so it's fine. Um, but our boys used to ask you questions like, well, how, how, how big a lie is really a lie? You know, or, well, you know, you told me that I, I wasn't allowed to do that, but, you know, can I do this much of it? And it'd still be okay. And sometimes our approach to sin is a bit like that. It's like we want to know the line. But it's not that we want to know the line so we can stay really far away from it, if we're really honest. We want to know the line so we can get up as close to it as possible without actually crossing it. Isn't that true? And I think sometimes this, this line of faith and unbelief is something similar. It's like, it's like we're almost like, well, I wonder, are you so concerned about the line and you're so worried about the line? It's like, what if we just fully immerse ourselves in faith? What if, we, what if we develop lives that are just all about growing and nurturing our faith? And then we wouldn't need to worry about that line that falls into unbelief. Sure, we wouldn't. We'd be so far over in this other area that we wouldn't have to go there. There's three things that I want to talk about. There's many I could talk about this morning about nurturing your faith, but there's three ones, three quick ones I want to talk about in this point. The first one is don't partner with disappointment. Allowing disappointment to seep and settle into your spirit can easily lead to unbelief. Now, it is totally okay, hear me, it is totally okay and fully human to be disappointed. We've all been disappointed. People let us down. People don't meet our expectations, or even worse, they actively hurt us. Life takes a turn for the worse, and our circumstances become difficult and really difficult and hard to live in. Not at all like you'd hoped and planned your life would be. You lose your job. You're still single, maybe. Someone you love is diagnosed with a life-changing illness. God has not answered your prayers or intervened in your life like you thought he should. All of these scenarios are genuine reasons to feel disappointed. But allowing disappointment to become part of who you are is a whole other level. And it can happen so subtly. So how can we deal with disappointment in a way, in a healthy way, without letting it take hold and steal our faith? Well, first of all, we acknowledge it. We call it out for what it is, right? We feel it. We don't pretend that it's not there. And you don't try and be super Christian and deny that you ever feel any disappointment. That's kind of my default. I'll be totally honest and vulnerable here. Sometimes I'm just like, no, 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 no. I'm not disappointed. No, not at all. Or maybe I'm just a really delayed reaction person. And then two weeks later, I am on the floor, crippled with disappointment, crying my eyes out because I'm so disappointed. Acknowledge it. Come to Jesus with it. Go to him. Sit with Jesus and say, Jesus, I am so disappointed right now. I am hurt. I am in pain. I am angry. I am frustrated. But please help me. Can we talk this through? Can you take this from me, Jesus? I don't want this in my heart. 
So first of all, we acknowledge it. And then we determine to keep a soft heart. Keep going back to Jesus. Every time that disappointment starts to, to, to raise the surface and go back to him. Or you stay in that place with him. You ask him to heal you from the pain of disappointment. And you ask them to preserve your heart in it. One of my favorite prayers, and honestly, sometimes in some seasons in my life, it's been the most prayed, is Psalm 5110. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, I pray for Jesus to make my heart pure. I don't want bitterness to take root in my heart. I don't want my genuine feelings to lead me to doubt the character of God and his goodness and faithfulness in my life. A steadfast spirit is a spirit of faith and endurance, and I want that. I want, a, I want a spirit of faith and endurance. But most of all, I want the presence of God and his Holy Spirit to be with me. Don't partner with disappointment. Do the hard, holy work of acknowledging with Jesus how you feel and inviting him to heal your heart and keep it pure and soft. And there's no quick fix in this. Number two. How else do we nurture our faith in our lives? Our faith in our lives. Daily practices of being with Jesus. And you're saying, are you just going to keep talking about these daily practices of being with Jesus? Yes, we are. Every single week. Because that's it. Left foot, right foot. That's how you get closer to Jesus. That's how you know who he is. That's how you grow in your faith. That's how you get to do the things that he does. The daily practices. Maintain the health of your heart and spirit by spending time with Jesus. There is no shortcut and there is only delight to be found. There is only delight to be found in his presence. Prayer, Bible reading, fasting, not so much delight in that, I think. Anyway, silence, solitude. You can see where I lean towards rather than some of the harder ones like fasting. Anyway, the more we learn about him, the more we get to know him personally and intimately. And the natural outcome is a deeper faith. It's not rocket science. There's a reason we're told to read our scriptures. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every day we read these scriptures. There's a reason why the church through the years, through the ancient years of the past 2,000 years, have encouraged us for these daily practices to pray, to sit, to spend time with Jesus, because it increases our faith. It gives us a deeper faith, a stronger belief. It gives us an anchor for when the storms of life come, we are not shaken and stormed about and wrecked about and put out of the boat. Number three, we grow our faith by being around other people of faith. I need to be around other people who share and encourage my faith. Now hear me on this, please. I am not in any way saying that you should not have people in your life who don't know Jesus, right? That's not what I'm saying. If you're new here, I need to say that because you haven't heard me say that before. If you're part of this church, you will know that's who we are if you cut us in two. We're all about those who don't know Jesus and those who do know Jesus equally. I'm not saying that we should only have Christian friends or live in some weird Christian bubble, right? Afraid that we're going to become contaminated by the world or lose our faith. I grew up in that kind of 1980s sort of teaching thing. Um, in fact, when I was at school, there was a, a girl in my class who was super Christian, right? I like to call her that. Like you know, yeah, super Christian. She was super Christian, right? She was really, like, she was like, you wanted to be that holy and that good, right? And 
she would be really annoyed with me. Like at times I could just tell that I was just like not anywhere near her league of super Christians kind of status. And, and, I, and I sort of thought, what is, I, I read my Bible, I pray, I'm, I'm like, I think I'm doing okay with Jesus, to be honest with you. But her big problem with me and how I live my life is because I had friends who didn't know Jesus. And it wasn't until years later that I was able to look back at that and say, that was a good thing. That was such a good thing. And, you know, if we are to be salt and light in a world that needs preserving and its, it's darkness needs driven back, how are we going to do that if we're not around people who don't yet know them? We cannot be in mission to people who are already Christians. It's a wee bit like every now and again my mommy invites me to go to the mission with her. The gospel mission, which are great. I'm not saying anything about gospel missions, right? But my mommy knows I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. What am I going to do at the gospel mission? I can't give my life to Jesus again. I've already done it. Now, every, every now and again, Jason, he'll be really a bit cheeky to Millie, and he'll say, Millie, why don't you take somebody who doesn't know Jesus? She very quickly changes the subject. We have always encouraged our lads to have friends who don't know Jesus, as well as those who do. Because you need both, right? You need to be salt and light, but you also need to have people in your life who know Jesus, who can show you the way to grow your faith. People that when you're around them, you just, like I have some friends and people, people here, you guys, being around you guys, I want to know Jesus more when I hang out with you. I want to pray more. I want to serve the poor more. I want to seek Jesus more in my life. It's like, it's like iron sharpens iron. So how do we do it? How do we grow in our faith? Well, we spend time with other believers and the best way, the most practical way, the biblical way that has remained unchanged in the past 2,000 plus years is church. This faith of ours was never intended to be individualistic. Yes, our faith is personal. personal. Only I am responsible for my decision to follow Jesus. Only you are responsible for your personal decision to follow Jesus. But this life of faith from that moment on, from that moment you make that decision to follow him, from that moment on, our faith is dependent on each other. And it is sadly a trend all through Western countries that weekly church attendance and participation of believers is in decline. And it concerns me and my fellow pastors, ministers, priests, clergy, whatever you want to call us, not for the reasons that you might think. Um, I read a blog um, this week, or an article actually written by um, a vineyard pastor, Jason Clark. I'll post it on Facebook or something later so you can read it. But he's uh, a vineyard pastor. He's also one of our theologians in the vineyard. Really super helpful in articulating this. You know, you might think that I want you all here on a Sunday because when the place is full and all the seats are used, that my ego feels better, Right? Or you might think that I want you all here on a Sunday because my employment depends on it, which might actually be true, but that that is actually not the reason. The reason that Jason and I long for you to make it here every single week, to participate fully in the life of church, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week in our small groups, community groups, in uh, serving, in a ministry, whatever, whatever way you participate in the life of church, the reason that we are so passionate about that is because there's a direct connection between the depth of a person's faith 
and their engagement in church. There's a direct connection. See, this whole idea of church being an option to the Christian life is, I'm afraid, complete nonsense. Now, I was going to apologize for the forthrightness of that statement, but I'm trying not to apologize as much for things that are true. It's actually true. If I see another photo on social media of someone in a forest going for a walk on a Sunday morning with the caption, my church this morning, I might actually cry. Cry with frustration, but also genuine sadness. Genuine sadness. Being on your own is not church. Being on your own is practicing those moments that we talked about, those practices of being with Jesus, those moments of connection with him that are so important. But being on your own somewhere on a Sunday morning at the time when you normally should be here is not church. It's not community. Jesus died for the church. He gave his life for her, for us. Now maybe we haven't helped in the modern church, to be honest. We say that we are the church and that you can't go to church, right? But then this gets taken to the absolute extreme, never actually intended, where it's unnecessary to go to church in the first place. Churches be, wherever you are. The reason this concerns me most and actually would make me cry is that the enemy knows, right? The enemy is like, the enemy of our soul is like a prowling lion. And he knows that the best place to attack is when you're isolated. When he can isolate you and take you away from the rest of your pack, then that is when you are most vulnerable to attack. That is when you're most gather, most vulnerable. See, when we are isolated, when you isolate yourself, the doubts become louder. It becomes more difficult to discern truth and our sin is way easier to justify when we're isolated. Sometimes church now is an option on a Sunday morning and it's an option of, what? well, I don't really have anything else planned, so I'll go to church. Please hear my heart. I do not want you vulnerable to the attack of the enemy by being isolated. I don't want you to become easy prey for him. I have seen it time and time again. 15 years, Jason says, 15 years we've been pastoring. And a person, I've seen people who are passionate, a person passionate about their faith. They are regular participants in the whole life of church and they continue to grow in their faith. You can see their faith growing and growing. Then after a while, other things start to take their attention. Not bad things, good things. But here's the thing, the enemy of your soul is not good. It's not bad things always. Sometimes it's good things, but we choose good over what's best. Does that make sense? They're not bad in themselves, so, but after a while, things start to take other priorities. It could be a sports club. Sports are great, great for your health. It could be that you decide that on a Sunday, you're going to spend more time with your family, your extended family, and, and that place where normally you would go to church, that becomes a slot. Or it's the only day of the week when our lives are busy and we're tired where we can have a pajama day. Another favorite social media post of mine. Or it's summertime and people decide to take the summer off church or have a sabbatical from church. You made this up. Why would you need to have a sabbatical from church? Anyway, I'm on a roll here this morning. And here's what's happened, right? People make these 
these decisions that seem good on the surface, right? And it takes them, makes them take a step back from regular, committed attendance and participation. I'm not just talking about coming and sitting in a chair and looking at your phone while you're in church. I'm talking about participation, full participation in church. And they, they just start to take these other things, start to take priority. And then after a while, all of a sudden, they feel disconnected. And they wonder why they're struggling to hear from God and why they're beginning to have severe doubts in their life. Please hear me. I am not judging anyone. I am really not. But I'm pointing out there's an obvious correlation. There's an obvious correlation between regular committed church attendance and the growing of your faith. Do you know this is already a problem in the early church? This is not just something that's alive and well in the 2,000-year-old church. Back in Paul's day, he wrote a letter to the Hebrews. 10 verse 25 says this, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I love that 2,000 years ago, Paul was fully anticipating Jesus' return. And we are still today. But I, you can see that there's already a problem here that Paul's having to address. Now, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. If you want your faith to grow, right? Which I think all of us do, right? If you want your faith to grow, then come to church. If your faith is not growing here at VCD, then please, please find another church where your faith will grow. And I mean that with all sincerity. I would be sad to lose you genuinely, but please, if your faith is not growing here, then please, please find a place where your faith can fully grow and flourish. You need to commit to whatever church you're a part of because our faith grows together. There is a cumulative effect. It's a wee bit like osmosis, I like to think, that when we meet together, there's, there's this cheering each other on, there's this encouragement. It's like when we worship together, when we gather around the scriptures, when we serve together, when we eat together, when we, when we just love to be with Jesus together, there is something that happens. There is a, there's a deepening of our faith. There's a quickening in our spirits. There is a growing that happens that does not happen in isolation. So my top tips for growing in your faith. Don't partner with disappointment. Practice being with Jesus and commit to church. I'm finishing off with this point. Legacy. Hebrews 11 is a list of faith heroes. I really encourage you to take some time this afternoon and read the whole chapter, right? But for the sake of time, I'm going to skip to verse 32. So Hebrews 11, verse 32, verses 32 to 40. If you want to turn there with me. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephunneh, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. 
These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We are in this collective journey. Our faith does not see all of God's promises fulfilled in our lifetimes, but our faith produces fulfilled promises for others. We are all connected in the eyes of God. There is a legacy that goes beyond even our own family's lives to the lives of many others. We are not just individuals in the story of God. We are connected and our faith not only impacts our own lives, but the lives of so many other people around us. Imagine the heroes of faith listed by Paul in Hebrews 11. Imagine they could have heard his words while they were still alive. Not for one moment did they see their faith in the, in the not, no, sorry, not for one moment did they see their faith in the moment of their lives to have eternal significance. In the moment that they were alive and living on this earth, they didn't see that there was an eternal significance in it. Their faith made a difference to our lives. Look at Abraham. He lived to see his family begin, yes. But the promise of God to Abraham was that his ancestors would number the stars of the sky and the sand on the shore. He never lived to see that fulfillment of that part of the promise. And we are children of Abraham, you and I, here, sitting here this morning in Vingana, Vineyard Church. We are fulfillment, we are in a fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. The fact that we even know about this man, that we would even know and have these, this account, that these accounts of his life, 4,000 years old of his life, we would still have them today and we would still be talking about him and we would still be gleaning from his faith blows me away and amazes me. And how and why does the legacy of Abraham live on? Because of faith. Your faith and my faith in God our Father, God who was Abraham's father, tie us together. Bind us together through faith in the same promises. One of my pals, um, Kate, her and I, when we get together, we talk regularly about this one thing. We talk about how, do we, how are we going to finish this race well? How are we going to end our time on earth? well. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. End and well is not simply about us meeting Jesus face to face and hearing the words, well done. I'm going to say that again. Ending well in this Christian life, in this life of faith, is not simply meeting Jesus face to face and hearing the words, well done. Your faith leaves a legacy for the generations, not just around you, but those coming after us. In the Western world, where faith in Jesus is becoming less popular, and we can feel a bit picked on and laughed at sometimes, it's so important that we keep our faith and we end well so that we pass on this hard-won faith that we have received from those who have gone before us so that the next generations can carry it on. It's not just our own faith that's at stake here. I feel this really strongly. You see, you allow yourself to be tossed around in the waters of fear and doubt without faith as your anchor, and then what are you leaving behind? What are we leaving behind? Missionaries 
have literally packed up their lives in their own coffin, traveled the countries far away that they have never seen and only heard of, gave their lives preaching the gospel, showing the kindness, mercy, and love of God. And some of them have died without having seen any come to faith or maybe just a few. Many of those same countries, though, since then, have seen many people come to, to know Jesus and their faith, the church grow and explode in those same countries. See, those faithful men and women died without seeing any fruit for their work, but the fruit still came. The fruit still came. In this big, massive tapestry of life that we're sown into, their lives and our lives are interwoven. And faith produced fruit that lasted, but they just didn't get to see it on this side of eternity. See, your faith today matters for you and your family, but it matters tomorrow because you are planting seeds today that will produce future fruit, that will produce future seeds, that will produce future fruit, that will produce future seeds, that will produce future fruit. Don't lose your faith. Let's stand.